welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. This week's review is Quintessence of Dust from Craig Walwork. Uh, Craig lives in West Yorkshire, England. His work has appeared in many journals, magazines, and anthologies, both in the UK and US. He is the author of the short story collection Quintessence of Dust and the novels To Die Upon a Kiss and The Sound of Loneliness. Um, I think he also did something called, uh, what was that called, Rob? It is uh, called Revenge of the Zombie Pussy Eaters uh, from oh. the Midnight Movie Creature Feature Anthology. How could I forget that title? I didn't. I just didn't want to be the one to say it this time. He doesn't like to say the word pussy. He's kind of a pussy about it. <laughs> All right. Great start to our episode. Uh, <laughs> here's a little bit about the <laughs> See, Craig Wahlberg. We didn't even get 30 seconds into the episode and we're already we're, we're getting all dirty. Uh, here's a little bit about the book we're going to be talking about. Uh, this is the blurb we pulled from Craig's website. Quintessence of Dust delivers a world where the Minotaur exists in modern society, drinks in bars, and is scared of the dark. <clears throat> where to lose memories and extract all the pain you've brought on others is easily achieved by pulling twine from your rectum. <laughs> it is a world where the devil is an old man digging a hole to hell in his garden, and romance is nurtured by spearing an umbrella through the chest of a winged demon. Here there are talking camels, and should you ever want to crawl back into the womb and begin a fresh, birth can be reversed, wishes can be granted, ugly can be erased, and those without ardor or enthusiasm can be nymphomaniacs by pinning a photograph upon a wall. In this world, the girth of a neck can bring on suicide, sleep can summon death, and people can live within the inner ear canal of others. The streets are always crimson, people are broken, lust is a commodity measured out in chocolate, and love is lost more than it is conquered. In this world, the dust bites and never settles. I don't think there's really a whole lot more to say about this. That's like everything you need. <laughs> you need to everything you need way. to know about this about this collection. <laughs> so, uh, before we get on, this is uh, a couple of things I want to mention. This is um, first; it's uh, available from Kubola Press, which is the uh, the press run by Pablo Dester, another name that comes up quite frequently on this show. Um, but the thing I really wanted to mention and why I mentioned it now is that it's uh, another Shakespeare reference. The quintessence of dust is another line from Shakespeare, much like Pablo's uh, collection was. They say the owl was a baker's daughter. Correct. So I don't know who came up with those titles, but I'm getting a feeling there's a little bit of a Shakespeare conspiracy. Also, <laughs> we should mention at this point that apparently I was wrong as um, our correspondent from the Netherlands, Malaz Corbier, was very, very quick to point out. Those of you who know Malaz know he doesn't typically call people out when they're wrong on something. But I think it was about three seconds after we posted the episode. Apparently Shakespeare was indeed very famous in his own time. While he was alive, you mean? Yes. Cool. Yeah. Much While like he was alive, yes. Much like Pablo Destere. Yes, exactly. Very yeah. famous. I did watch the movie Anonymous last night, though, and now I actually Ooh. believe that Shakespeare didn't write anything. So, <laughs> um, I also want to make a note before we really dig into this book. Uh, I'm sick as a dog, so my voice might sound a little strange in this episode. It's because I'm uh, basically one foot in the grave right now. So apologies if I sound a little raspy or out of breath. It's just because I can't breathe at all. Yeah, I'm being the slave driver I am. I forced him into doing this episode tonight. Not possibly wait another day before we reviewed Quintessence of Dust. <laughs> That's right. So now that we have all that good stuff out of the way, let's talk about the book. And before we get into it too much, uh, the part in the synopsis that we read, um, the the devil is an old man digging a hole to hell in his garden. That story didn't make sense until I read that line about that story in the synopsis right here. <laughs> Oh, well, that makes one of us because it still didn't. Yeah. 
Still right. not really. <laughs> That's cool. So we'll talk about that maybe a little bit during while we do the review. So being that this is a collection, um, you know, I'd just like to kind of rehash that um, Rob and I were never really big on reading collections before we started um, doing this show. And we find ourselves reading more and more. And yet I'm really enjoying them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We and, and one of the things actually now I remember early on when we did one of our first uh, short story collections, we our comment was that we just can't find anything that's good. And now it seems like we just really needed to open that door because there's a ton of really good stuff out there. Absolutely. Um, so anyway, when we do a collection or an anthology, what we do is we each pick a couple of stories that, that we like and, you know, or that are standout stories for one reason or another. And we talk about them. So <clears throat> we're going to bring you five this time. Rob and I agreed on on one of them being, uh, you know, our standout story for both of us. So we're going to talk about five of these stories today. You want to kick it off with uh, with one of yours, Rob? Yeah, sure thing. Oh, I want to mention, too, um, Olivia's mentioned before this is on Kuboa Press. I don't know if you said it or not, so I want to make sure we don't lose it. Kuboa does offer um, all the electronic versions, ebook, you know, for all the different, uh, you know, Kindles and Nooks and everything and iPads for free download through Smashwords. I don't know if you mentioned that, so I want to make sure I point that out. Very good. No, I did forget to mention that. Cool. All right. So that's that. There's also print editions available, but... If you wanted to get a, a little taste, you could get the, the electronic version for free. Um, to kick this off, let's not bury the lead at all. <laughs> the first story I want to talk about is a little tale called Anal Twine. <laughs> a little tale. Did you just say a little tale? <laughs> tale. See what I did there? <sighs> I don't know. <laughs> all right. <laughs> it's going to be like that tonight. I'm a little bit. It's the it's the, uh, the day quills messing with my head. All right, so anal twine, and even as I was reading, I finished reading the story. I was uh, I reluctantly had to admit myself that this was probably going to be one of my favorite stories in the book because of how well it's written and the actual, you know, the actual emotions that are behind it, which sounds ridiculous. But essentially, so this guy uh, has a has a a doctor appointment with a, basically like a proctologist because um, he's having trouble having bowel movements, and in, in the course of the story, as things go along. Um, it turns out that there's like, uh, basically this blue twine, like that's in his ass. <laughs> and, um, and, and as, as the story goes along, they're trying to figure out what to do about it. Yeah. Here, Livius, what do you think? How much should I reveal about this? Um, the synopsis mentioned that you can lose memories by pulling twine out of your rectum. So okay. I'm thinking that, yeah, cool. We're safe then. So yeah, essentially, um, <laughs> the the twine that's in his ass um is tied to the memories that he has and so figures out that he can he can lose memories by getting this twine out and uh what he decides to do with that knowledge is really interesting and and the story itself is a weird concept and everything but the reasons and the motivations for what he does once he finds out what's going on I thought was was really good so I read this story on lunch at work because um, all these are kind of you know bite-sized stories that are just great for knocking out in you know, <laughs> 20 minutes or whatever you have you know, on a work break or whatever. So um, <clears throat> I started off reading the story and thinking it was just kind of a gratuitous way to just do a kind of gross story or whatever. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I uh, went on Twitter and made sure that uh, uh, Craig Walwer could see that, uh, how, <laughs> how affected I was by the story during my lunch. But... That being said, the catalyst for the story, the the twine itself or whatever, I mean, leads into just a fantastic story. And of all the stories, I think, in this book, 
I'm not going to say that that was my favorite story because it wasn't. But the ending of that, I think, was written so well. And like you said, you know, it it just kind of comes across as this gross story until you just kind of really get into it and the motivations of the main character and the choices he makes. Um, Just really, really terrific ending to that story. Yeah, and I think that's typical of Craig's style is that, like, he does have a lot of really out there, um, sometimes really sick or offensive or really just kind of twisted elements to the story. But it all boils down to the fact that like, I mean, that's not what you're reading. You're reading is a good story. That's got weirdness in it. You're not reading weirdness. That's got a little bit of story thrown in it. I would definitely have to agree with that. So the first story I want to talk about, of course, I'm going to go in the classy direction. Unlike Rob that went right for the, right for the (laughs) anal twine straight to anal twine for me. (laughs) I'm going to talk about what was my uh, what was my favorite story um, in in the in the collection. It's called Railway Architecture, and uh, it's basically just a story about this really, you know, kind of dweeby, geeky guy who, um, you know, has never had much of a love life. He's married, but it's just kind of one of these, you know, almost like I don't want to say sham marriages, but they're they're, they're not really in love with one another. They just kind of coexist or whatever. And it's about the crush he has on a uh, on one of his coworkers. And again, not to give too much away from the story, but it kind of follows his process and in, in what he does um, and how that affects um, his life and his opinions on things. But uh, yeah, I just with some of these stories, I don't want to give anything away, but it's just the, the whole structure of this story and the feelings he was able to capture. It's one of these kind of be careful what you wish for um, type stories, mm-hmm. you know, and I thought he just delivered it just nail home literary delivery. I mean, just fantastic all the way through. I actually bookmarked a, a couple of passages from that um, story that I'm not going to read because they're both incredibly long. But I mean, just, you know, big block chunk passages that I really liked of his description of this guy's feelings and like his fantasy that he has. It was just fantastic. And my main, yeah, I agree with Livius about the story. And one of the things that I noticed, and I, I don't know if you, we didn't get to talk about this yet, it's it's not it's more of a longer short story. I think it's one of the longer stories in the in the book. And um, Wallwork goes into a lot of detail about you know different things in the book. Like uh, there's the thing about the guy making chocolates, and that's uh, it's part of the the plot of of winning the affection of someone and stuff like that. And and he goes into a lot of detail about the making of chocolates and 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 some other stuff. Like he gets into like the nitty gritty of certain things in different parts of the story in a way where when I started reading it, I was like, Oh, this is going to, we're going to get kind of lost in the weeds here and kind of lose track of the plot. Um, and it never happened. Like there's, there's a risk of, of going too far into details about something and losing the reader. But he did it in a way where like he went into details just enough without like really making me feel like it was not necessary to be in there. It felt like it was, just about right, I guess. I'm being really long-winded about it, but um, it, it, he did it in a way that it enhanced the story instead of detracting from it. All right, and then I'll, I'll back you up on that. And the, the way I kind of looked at it was, um, yes, there were a lot of details about the chocolate, but the making of the chocolate was kind of the the main character's, like you said, ambition to, to lure somebody in through these sweets that he would bring her at work. And while he is so focused on that, and as we're getting all the pouring out of details, what happens is that the main character is so into it that he kind of misses what's starting to go on around him. You know, he's so focused on his, his, his plot, so to speak, that he misses 
everything changing around him as yeah. he's doing this. And that's why I think that, like you said, the details were there, but I really felt that I got sucked into the details like the character did. Yeah, yeah, so, exactly. You know, yeah. Yeah, it was very well done. All right, so the next one that I want to talk about is uh, a, kind of a weirder story called Gutterball's Labyrinth. This is another one that um, I'm not going to really be able to talk too much about with uh, without giving away kind of the, the big part of the story, but it's about a guy who's really ugly. Um, who had a very tragic childhood, uh, uh, lost his mother, I guess, in childbirth, and his father was just an asshole who didn't like him. And um, so he had a very tragic childhood. He's a very ugly person who doesn't have a lot going on for him in life. And this weird thing happens uh, one day, um, and he has a like a medical student uh, living in the building that he's with who tries to help him figure out what's going on with him. And the results of that are just this, like, total unexpected twist first of all in a weird way but also in an emotional way that i'd never in my life would have ever imagined it was very very creative um yeah very touching very funny very very funny so um just very fable-like which i thought was great as a few of these stories kind of come off that way like you know things you should learn from this story done in a way it uh kind of reminds me a little bit of what malaz does with with stuff that he writes like there's always kind of a lesson to be learned underneath and so many of these stories do that, and Gutterball's Labyrinth does a great job of that. Yeah, and that whole like fable, fairy tale kind of feel allows him to go really far into the strangeness without it taking over the story. Right? Would you agree? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So that was good. That was a good story. I like that a lot. And that, like you said, funny that uh, that um, medical student was just a total asshole to the main character, but um, uh, in a in a really <laughs> in a really hilarious way. All right. The next story I want to talk about is Night Holds a Scythe. Um, just this just great story about uh, a father who. OK, so the setup is basically this. He very quickly in a short story kind of sets up what's going on in the world. There are people who when they fall asleep, they just don't wake up anymore. It's a disease that spread like wildfire around, you know, around the planet. Um, and it's about a father trying to keep his daughter awake. And he does that by trying to chase the sun around the world to uh, avoid it ever becoming nighttime. So much like Rob said about the previous story about it just being, you know, touching. This one wasn't surprisingly touching. You know, you'd assume that it's going to be a very touching story. And he just really delivers emotional, you know, puts you on kind of this this emotional ride that this father's taking with his daughter. And just like a really neat concept about, you know, just how he approaches uh, the, the situation and, and how he the father plans to combat this illness that's befallen everybody. Yeah. And it's the um, it's the start. It's the first story in the in the collection. So what happens is you hit the ground running with this like desperate situation where this guy is chasing the son to save his daughter's life. So you've got this like really intense situation with a lot of emotion packed into it right at the beginning of the book. So I think it's a great way to hit you with some weird right out of the door because it's a really unique, crazy situation to be in, but also um, to really amp you up for, for um, crazy shit and very big emotions going on. Yes, very, very well written and very touching. I got some cool quotes from this uh, that I'll, that we'll we'll talk about in a little bit. There were some interesting explanations of of what happens in a world where you die if you fall asleep. That I I I think and Craig <laughs> Craig and I were talking. Um, I had him read through a story I wrote, and he was giving me he 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 made a comment about something. He's like, you know, I could see an entire collection of stories around this one idea in this story, and I feel that way about the his idea of a world that 
you die if you fall asleep because he goes into a little bit of detail about like you know people <laughs> you know killing each other for Starbucks and stuff like that like not exactly that but that kind of thing and I was like yeah I just want to read more about this this crazy world you know where where you can't fall asleep or you die yeah, I didn't give it a lot of thought, but I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I didn't give it a lot of thought. I know exactly what you're talking about, but I guess knowing that it's a short story, when I start reading it, I assume the whole story and world is going to be encapsulated into that one little piece. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you're absolutely right. I, while you were talking, I could think of five or six different scenarios that could play out as, as stories from that. Yeah, yeah. So like, I mean, he could build an entire, he could take that story and and turn it, you know, turn that concept into an anthology, you know, or like, you know, some sort of like serialized situation. There's, there's so many different, it's such a cool kernel of a thought. Blockbuster Hollywood movie. There it is. Yeah. All right. You want to talk about the joint story that we have? Uh, not, it's not actually a story about a joint. I'm surprised that we didn't have any joint stories in this collection of weirdness, but, um, the story we both in common liked. Sure. Um, yeah, I'll kick it off. So there, the title of the story is 180 Degrees Shy of Heaven, um, which the title itself, I, I, I took it in an entirely different way until I actually read um, the story. But again, this is one of those fable-like stories where you got a husband and wife and the husband's really frustrated in the marriage because the wife just uh, isn't interested in the sexual part of the, the relationship anymore. And so he goes to some extremes to... Uh, to to try and and turn that around um and actually let me pull i'll pull from the synopsis for this Uh, it ties in with the the part of the synopsis that says and those without ardor or enthusiasm can be nymphomaniacs by pinning a photograph upon a wall um so that's kind of where we're at in the story he he's trying to get back that that you know part of his the sexual part of his relationship and yeah it's got this fable like kind of lesson or moral that comes out of it that uh it's pretty cool yeah i i liked it and it is seemed very thematically similar to railway architecture which i mentioned earlier and it's uh you know kind of a, a cautionary tale a, a be careful what you wish for mm-hmm. um and yeah you talk about people like it had the the um I don't even know how you put it, but it had the guy, you know, like the magic guy that kind of knows a lot more <laughs> than you do, you know, and he's like this kind of, he's a barman, you know, where he runs this bar and, you know, he's kind of got a little bit of magic to him, but he knows a lot more than you do. And you know, that guy knows a lot more than the characters do when he, they first introduce him. So mm-hmm. you just kind of wonder where it's going to go as he offers up this, uh, this once in a lifetime opportunity to the main character. Yeah. Like a too good to be true kind of situation. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, so I think that was definitely noteworthy. And uh, once you get to what 180 degrees of shy of heaven uh, really means in the story, you're like, hey, that's awesome. I like the way that that turned out. It just because uh, it was just in a very it's like a very uh, unusual colloquialism, I guess. And it was pretty cool. I just used a big word. I heard. <laughs> it's because I didn't use the uh, pulled it out of his ass joke when we we're talking about anal twine. <laughs> oh God! You know I'm I'm terribly saddened by that too. I should have had uh, I should have had you and uh... <laughs> never mind. <laughs> All right, <clears throat> you and Ferguson should have reviewed this book. I think is yeah. what we've done. See, like I said, I went true. the classy route with my stories. You, on the other hand, <laughs> well, yeah. But the thing about it is, even the stories that are crazy, like Anal Twine, are really compelling as as stories. They're very literary uh, aspects to them. So. 
Um, so we've talked about our stories. I've got a couple notes about some other ones that we didn't talk about as standout stories. Okay. Um, there's there's a story called Men of Blood, and it's about uh, a guy whose friend is a minotaur. There's not much I can really say about it, but uh, um, at, at one point in the story, the minotaur friend has to go into this door in the basement of the building he lives in and, and kind of navigate a labyrinth. And um, reading about it made me think about a book I read not too long ago by Victor Pelevin called The Helmet of Horror, The Myth of Theseus and the Minotaur. Um, Victor Pelevin's a, a Russian author who... Um, I originally read his book, Life of Insects, which I just think is a fantastic, fantastic book. Um, but The Helmet of Horror is is a, is a modern kind of retelling of the story of Theseus and the Minotaur, where um, uh, everybody's basically, there's like all these people in a chat room, and nobody can like directly interact with each other, but they're all having these external kind of like, uh, they're locked in these rooms, and they're on a chat room as their only kind of contact with the outside world and all these weird things are happening just outside of their room and they have to kind of like share their experiences with each other and it's really kind of weird but it was it was a pretty cool book that's all i got i just thought about that and i wanted to it was an excuse for me to talk about victor pelvin because his book life of insects that i read was just like crazy cool it's a collection of short stories that are all um weirdly like anthropomorphic like there's or not even anthropomorphic, but kind of like a Kafka-esque, like people are humans, but they're also insects, so they turn into insects and stuff, and these weird things happen to them. It's, I can't do it justice in, in a minute of talking about it, but it's a really great book. While you were doing that, I looked up The Helmet of Horror, um, and it's got you know just a handful of reviews on, on Amazon that I always <laughs> find most amusing is I always go to the worst review to see what it says. And I, uh, I read these last night, so I know it's coming. <laughs> okay, so so here it is. I know the myth of Theseus and the Minotaur, and I have very rarely looked at it on chat rooms. Rarely, because the chat in the ones I have visited is usually so inane. The book does mirror the inconsequentialness of some of these chat rooms, but if there is some method in the madness of this version of the myth, I'm afraid I just don't get it. My mind not only does not work this way, but can't understand a mind that does. So I've got lost, all right. My fault, no doubt. All right, that kind of fell apart at the end there. Yeah. So thanks, Ralph Blumenau, um, for uh, for providing us with that wonderful review of of the Helmet of Horror. Yep. It's yep. it's a Pelvin's kind of a weird like he's kind of a trip, and and not everything he writes is like very linear. Uh, it's not one hundred percent linear. I mean, there's a lot of cool things that he does, and he really takes some liberties with um, you know physics and time and and things like that, but. Um, it's it's a pretty interesting read. Another um, story I wanted to mention, only because I think I almost had Rob talked into another episode of Booked Theater. Uh, <laughs> but then I realized that if we did that, it would just go on for too long. We've still got so much stuff to cover. But there's a story called The Whore That Broke the Camel's Back. <laughs> yep. And it's this is more along the lines of Revenge of the Zombie Puss Eaters and Anal Twine. And uh, it's a story about a woman who's being paid to have sex with a, with a, a camel. And um, the camel is like Mr. Ed. It can talk. And it's horrified at the concept <laughs> that it has to have sex with this woman. And there's this whole exchange where the woman just can't 
understand why the camel is is so just horrified of the thought of having sex with a woman versus you know what you would think is the woman would be horrified of having sex with a camel um very touching story believe it or not um as you kind of go through it and, and get this camel's take on things and this kind of other camel that this camel was in love with and that you know just just a great story and i think i almost had rob convinced to read like two pages of that and i was going to totally get him to play the whore just so i could play the camel yeah, I knew you were going to be the camel. That's how I see us in this relationship. <laughs> you're you're the whore and I'm or no, wait, I'm the whore and you're the camel, right? Is that what we yes. say? Yeah. That's right. You keep getting us mixed up. <laughs> so, um Did you have any other anything else you want to talk on? Um I just want to say and this is going back to like the cheap jokes and everything, but the 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 story directly following anal twine is called the hole. And I thought that was a bit of an unfortunate placement. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't know. We could do a, a wrap up. I think. Uh, do you have any other uh, overall thoughts about the book, the collection? Um, yeah, I've got kind of a bigger thought on collections that I wanted to kind of touch on a little bit, if you don't mind. Yeah. So <clears throat> we just came off of um, off of another a few collections actually over the last I don't know three or four months and this is the first one that really um, that's you know one author collection that has no thematic um, thread throughout you know you've got stories as we just mentioned you know we've got the 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 talking camel that has to have sex with this woman and then you've got this you know this this great story about relationships and a guy who's unhappy in his relationship you know so there's really no thematic theme so there are thoughts on that. I mean, what what do you think? Do you think that a book becomes better because there's a common theme? So like Destair's um, collection that we just reviewed recently, that had that theme of men finding themselves in these unbelievably in these unbelievable situations where they're totally stressed out and don't know what to do and have to take like crazy action, you know, or yeah, so something like that have higher value or Frank Bill's Crimes in Southern Indiana, where it all takes place kind of in this small town and there's some recurring characters versus a, a collection that, I mean, is, you know, quite literally thematically all over the place like Wallworks. I guess this is going to be the biggest cop out answer, but I, I'd i say it all comes down to the quality of the stories. Um, I mean, you could have a, a collection of stories that is thematically linked, but is so like routinely similar that like you feel like you're reading the same story over and over again. Um, as far as this specific collection, I don't feel that it being so very, like there being such a variation from one story to the next really took away anything from it. And I almost thought it would. I knew that cause you, you kind of read it uh, again. Livius always gets, gets rolling on books sooner than I do, but I tend to finish them first it's strange but anyway uh um so i knew they weren't there wasn't much of a thematic kind of thread going through it but and i was and i was a little bit concerned that it would feel all over the place but for me i didn't detract from it really at all now in thinking that you would say that i prepared a second kind of backup nice. question <laughs> then, yeah so I'm going to I'm going to go through with what I think. I think that from a memorable standpoint, I think that the thematic um, works a little better. And I think that you remember them bigger because then you almost treat them as a novel versus a collection of short stories, if that makes sense, like kind yeah. of as a bigger, a bigger piece of work that's consisted of short stories. So preferentially, I think in, in writing quality aside, just comparing one to the other, I would prefer thematically linked 
um, anthologies, collections, whatever you want to call them. Okay. But how about this? Which one becomes the better writer? The person that specializes in writing a collection that's all about the same thing. So we just talked about Matt Bell, and I'm not asking you to pick between Matt Bell and, <laughs> and, and Craig Walwork, but just for example, um, Matt Bell wrote 20 something stories all about post apocalyptic child issues. Okay. Couldn't be more thematically linked. Um, and Walwork goes and writes however many stories are here that are all completely different. I think, like I said, two of them kind of, in my opinion, had a similar theme, but they were spread so far out in the book that it, it was hard to even notice. I don't really know. I mean, again, I think they almost have to fall into their own categories because, like, here's the thing. When I think of, and you made a, you made a very good point, Cataclysm Baby, um, <clears throat> very thematic, you know, uh, uh, selection of stories and everything. But when I think about Cataclysm, maybe I think of it as more of one cohesive piece. Whereas when I'm thinking about Quintessence of Dust now, I'll think of the stories that stood out as as being my favorites or the ones that touched me most. So um, I think <laughs> when you have a collection that's not thematically linked, you have more of an option to just pick and choose the the ones to to look at them all individually. And instead of lumping them all together as, you know, variations on a theme. Very well. I'm going to say, I'm going to go back and say, I'm certainly not making the statement specifically about <laughs> Bell or, or wall work or anything. Cause I don't want to offend anybody. Cause I really enjoyed cataclysm. Maybe I also really enjoy quintessence of dust. Um, obviously when somebody sits down to write a collection that's thematically linked, they choose to do that. And I'm not saying that authors that do that don't have, um, you know, ability to vary their writing. But if I had to pick, um, from that standpoint, even though I like those better, this type of um, collection with the varied writing just shows this ability to write in probably six different genres if we really broke it down, which is pretty impressive, I think, because, I mean, he really hit the mark on, on, on almost all of them. Yeah. And again, for me, I, I would almost really even just consider them two different animals personally. That would go the same way for if they were written by different people like uh, – Warmed and Bound is, you know, 36 stories that run the gamut from, you know, bizarro to, to noir to, you know, probably a little bit of horror somewhere, if I remember correctly. Um, <laughs> uh, well, Bob Passarella is in it, so it's all it's, horror. Yeah, it's all horror. <laughs> That's what I'm scaling about. <laughs> so, but yeah, I look at that as, uh, you know, one thing with many pieces, whereas oh, I'm trying to think of another good example, you know, uh, midnight movie creature feature. Well, yeah, midnight movie creature feature is kind of more themed, but again, I see that kind of as as a bunch of different pieces in one in one shell. So, I yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of up in the air about it now. Yeah, but it's just the thought I had while I was reading it, because like I said, as I kind of mentioned at the top of the show, we've read a lot of collections recently, which is something that's new to me. And this one kind of just stood out for being the first one. Even Warmed and Bound, I think, had that kind of noiry thread through the whole thing. And there were some stories that didn't quite, you know, fit that mold. But by and large, you mm -hmm. know, I think those stories fit pretty well together. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, yeah. So. Well, and then look at, okay, let's talk about In Search of a City, Los Angeles in a Thousand Words, which is a collection of stories that are all about Los Angeles mm -hmm. versus something like Cataclysm Baby, which is, you know, 26 stories. And I think the main difference is like Cataclysm Baby is thematically linked and it's all written by the same person. And it feels very much like one one piece, you know, in sections. Mm -hmm. I Yeah. I'm really just kind of digressing, but I, I feel like there's that it stands out as, as different than the other collections we've been reading lately. 
Well, let's do this. How about we put up a post on Facebook and see what some other people think about it? Hey, there we go. So maybe that'll be a little fun. So yeah, give us your thoughts. <clears throat> so let me try to break this down a little simpler. So give us your thoughts on um, collections that are very thematically linked versus connections that vary in genre and style and scope like uh, Craig Walwork's collection. And then give us opinions. Is there is one a better writer than the other because one can write all over the map and the other one focuses you know, completely in on, on uh, one particular theme or subject. And give us examples of ones you think that are good or bad in either of those scenarios. Cause um, you know, our minds are only so big and we, we like to, to kind of expand what we know from the, the people that we have our conversations with. I'm very serious. I mentioned this before, but at some point I'm going to try to get on track with reading at specific times for the show. Cause I think I really just want to start reading collections. Like I said, I get these, you know, half hour lunch breaks and I spend, you know, a good 25 minutes of them reading. I'd like to just, uh, I think I'm just gonna start reading some short fiction during the day and do all my book reading at night. Hey, not bad. All right. So, um, what do you think about doing some quotes? I've got some really good quotes from here. Absolutely. All right. Uh, do you want to kick it off? Um, I can. Uh, so this one is just going to be really, really, um, uh, quick. Cause I thought this is, a uh, uh, kind of funny and kind of a good indication of, uh, some of uh, the humor from, from Mr. Walwork. So, uh, there's really no, uh, no need to set this up. So it's, I check my reflection in the mirror at work and sure enough, I look like I'm a bandana away from leukemia, not menacing or surly. Like I wanted my lack of hair to present my head to the world to look. I really like that one. That one stood out to me too. Um, here's two that I'm going to throw back to back. These are from the first story, um, <clears throat> which is called night holds a, a scythe. Uh, that's the one where Livius talked about earlier that the father, um, was following the son. So his, his daughter wouldn't fall asleep. Uh, the first one is basically one of the things that I was thinking about would, when I was talking about, there's a lot more story to the story than what we got. I had to beat a man near to death for ground coffee when the looting began. It's just such a, a vivid, such a heavy thought. <laughs> um, the next one is just more indicative of, of the writing style of Woolworks that I really enjoy, like the colorfulness of his, of his descriptions of things. The wheels touch a giant's back. Okay, I have to do a little, uh, do a little um, before I go on. Um, so he was painting this really vivid kind of, like, again, fairy tale explanation of, of, of the landscape. And he was talking about how there were giants on the world that at one point laid down and then moss and grass and trees grew over them. And so the, the hills and stuff were actually, you know, giants laying down and everything. So um, when he says the wheels touch a giant's back, he's referring to landing on the ground. The wheels touch a giant's back and the small aircraft bobs its nose like the beak of a curious duck. It's just a very, it instantly brings a picture that everybody can recognize to mind. And I appreciate that. I've also got a couple. I'm going to roll back to back here because they're similar in style, but um, just really beautiful writing. Um, these are both from The Hole. And again, it's more for the, the sentences than for what they mean for the story. So I'm not going to set these up at all. From eight to late, we wait with breath fogging my pain and silence that pins you to the ceiling. Mm -hmm. Like that is probably one of the better written sentences I've read in quite some time. Um, the other one, and just because they're very stylistically similar, from black to brown, from brown to fawn, and then to a warm russet color, the floor was a shifting landscape of color. The skin around my hand is the same. Yes, that was very good. I, 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 very memorable part of that story, yes. 
This is a really tightly written sentence that tells a lot, and this is from um, Railway Architecture, I believe. They bought a small flat with an amazonette that was as dank as their feelings for each other. Immediately you know how that, you know, that small flat looks, and immediately you know a lot about their relationship. Mm-hmm. All right, and then I'm going to do another one while Livius uh, pokes around for his next quote. Uh, this one is just funny dialogue that I loved. Um I'm not paying for no fucking door, he yelled. Another person shouted back, double negative, so yes, you bleed nar. <laughs> <laughs> All right, this one's kind of long, so I'm just going to ramble on until I'm tired of rambling, but this is from Railway Architecture, and it's a description of um, of uh, the, the love interest uh, in this one. So, Louisa Bracknell was petite and toned. She wore skirts cut above the knee. Her shoes patent leather, high-heeled and round-toed. The top four buttons of each blouse were virgins, never penetrating the tiny holes that lay across the divide of her modest but perfect breasts. When she clipped her hair back, dark storm clouds of hair, the color of burnt umber, swirled upon the nape, her fingers at times searching out its eye. Her step was heavy, deliberate, which, considering her size and slim figure, appeared inappropriate. Perry, while drinking tea at home and watching his wife finish off an old batch of his chocolates, would later deliberate Louisa's step, and it would be... His conclusion that Louisa had grown up within a large house where such noise is absorbed by long corridors and thick interior walls. While alone in the toilet, Perry would rehearse dialogue where he and Louisa would be engaged in unassuming curiosity towards each other. He practiced his smile in the mirror while washing his hands and would comment upon her shirt as though asked the question by Louisa. And it just goes on and on, but it's it's just he he does this wonderful job of, of kind of immersing Perry into this, this world of Louisa. And like I said, mentioned initially, it's just the perfect of how he kind of misses the things that are going around or going on around him while he's absorbed in her. Yeah. And I have to say that that's pretty difficult to, the difficulty in that is getting the reader to be the right amount of distracted by these details that he needs to be while still letting them realize that there's other details that are being missed. It's, it's a, a tough thing to pull off. And I think he did, I think he did it right. Mm-hmm. I have a quick one. That's just um, Ray again for, for words and description that I want to throw out. This is from men of blood. The one about the Minotaur thick rusted screws lay on their sides, bent and twisted like toasted maggots. And I've got one more. You got any more? You want me to do my last one? I have, I have one more I'm going to throw out there and this is uh, just for, for comedic purposes here. Um, this is from Anal Twine, and this is uh, the the main character is is at the doctor at the I don't know proctologist colonologist whatever he'd be called. Uh, the first line here is talking about the doctor. In all my years, he says, shaking his head, when a rectal surgeon who specializes in fecal incontinence, rectal cancer, and inflammatory bowel disease says this, you have to give it your full attention. <laughs> That's good stuff. The last quote I have is quite long, and it's from 180 Degrees Shy of Heaven. And um, it just, for me, it's all about the the names of the stores and shops that he mentioned in this. There's not a lot of setup. It's basically the, the main character is walking home from work. From the envelope factory to his home, Frank passed two shops, a Caribbean fast food takeaway called Jamaican Me Hungry, and a hairdresser's called Curl Up and Die, D-Y-E. Uh, he took great interest in their names and once explained to Audrey, albeit too poetically for her, that the boundary of comedy remains feral with the pun. Every Friday, he purchased haddock and chips from a chippy called the Codfather and spent each Saturday morning picking out ripe tomatoes from a fruit and veg shop called Melancholy. His shoes were from Our Souls, 
and all the roses used to sprinkle on the bed as a romantic gesture to Audrey were from a flower shop called Florist Gump. Names became a big thing whenever Frank chose to do anything, which is why that night he felt there would be no better place to drink than the public house named Nobody Inn. The terrific part of that is um, not for me, not so much in the names, but that he gave his character this trait where he would shop at a place because of its clever name. Yep. So I like the names, but I think that the genius in that was giving that character a trait that, you know. That compelled him to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And it's just clever. And, and uh, I, I liked it. It was just a funny, it was a fun aside that, again, didn't detract from the story, but it, it was just entertaining. Before we do wrap-ups, can I make a mention of something? Oh, why not? For anybody that's not from the UK that plans on reading this collection of stories, I want you to know right now that flashlights (laughs) in the UK are called torches, I believe. Because in this book, uh, there's several places where flashlights are used, and he he calls them torches. And, And it took me a second to make that connection. Because I'm imagining someone like dousing something in kerosene and lighting it on fire. When, Chasing Frankenstein out yeah. of town. And I'm like, why does this thing have batteries? <laughs> <laughs> so I had to figure out, yeah, torches are, I believe, uh, <laughs> flashlights in the UK. Which doesn't make sense. I mean, come on. Get in the 21st century, guys. It's a flashlight. Wow. And our our listenership in the UK has gone from one to zero. Thanks a lot, buddy. Yeah, because there's a whole lot of people who are going to get really twisted up about the goddamn I torches t- reference. <laughs> <laughs> All you that's it. Know. He can make fun of anything, but he's not going to take torches away from us. Hey, I retook the opening because I said Yorkshire, and I thought that movie was Yorkshire. <laughs> so, Oh, well, you know that. Uh, I don't know if you saw this, but on the... After one of our episodes where we mentioned Craig a while back, it might have even been when we talked about Revenge of the Zombie Pussy Eaters, uh, Mlaz made a comment somewhere and he said, hey, it's not Craig, but he didn't correct it to what we should be saying. So I don't know if it's Craig or something, you know, weirdly British, but uh, he said we're saying Craig wrong. I think it's supposed to be Craig, not Craig. I don't know. Well, we said Craig, and then he said, in the in the comment, he said it's not Craig, and he spelled it C R E G, like Craig. Oh, so I think he's telling us that we're saying Craig wrong, <laughs> but he didn't correct us to what it should be. So, guess what? It's Craig. The guy's name is Malaz. I mean, come yeah. on. Yeah, what a made up name that is. <sighs> All right. Um, yeah, let's wrap this up. You go first this time. All right, I don't want to get too lovey-dovey about Craig Wallwork, but I really enjoy his writing style, and I like the fact that he can introduce such bizarre elements to stories and still write a piece that I consider to be pretty literary. There were kind of hints of like fable, fairy tale-ish kind of stories where where there's a lesson to be learned, you know, um, that I, I enjoyed too. Um, and a lot, and it's got a lot of in common with what Malaz writes, like Livia said before, but that's nothing to do with uh, my review of the book. Um, all in all, it's a varied collection of really good stories, and um, I could see myself reading it another time and still getting a lot out of it. So that's uh, so there's something to be said for that, because typically with collections, once I read them, you know, that's it. And I won't even really go back to, to sample even one or two stories. It's like I know them and then I'm happy with it. So uh, the fact that I could see myself going back and rereading it really speaks to this. So um, really enjoyed the book, and I'm going to do five stars for this one. Very nice. All right, I am in agreement with uh, pretty much everything you said. So here's kind of the the rehash in case you didn't hear Rob say it. 
Um, Craig Walwork can really write. I mean, this guy writes fantastically. So <laughs> once you get past torches and flashlights and, and some, some other you know, tally whackers or whatever else, there's some other stuff that comes up that was a little questionable on the American front. But um, just a fantastic writer. Uh, passages that are just absolutely beautiful. And then the next story has passages that have you like, you know, kind of giggling out loud. So it's it's great stuff. Um memorable stories fable like which i enjoy um not for the fact they teach me lessons so much as the fact that i like it when writers take um you know kind of a real story and then you know add that kind of weird element to make it a fable uh reminds me a little bit of jonathan carroll who some of his earlier works are just fantastic like that they were really normal people with one strange twist that made it into a great story so so that being said um i'm gonna go four and a half stars uh, the half star, uh, one a quarter star penalty for the lack of theme, which, like I said, I decided that in a collection I really, really like uh, the other quarter for making me read Adolf Twine while I was on lunch. Wow, Craig, he's holding it against you that he chose to read on his lunch break. <laughs> it sounds a little bit unfair. I think this is more of a 375. <laughs> I, uh, 375, 475. That's what I meant. Yeah, yeah, don't lower it for him. Well, it's. <laughs> All right, but if I do that, then I have to actually go back and blame Kuboa for not putting a warning on the on the label on the book. All right, yeah, let's blame Pablo to stare. Okay. So there you have it. Nice. Yeah. Five and a four and a half. That's probably the highest reviewed thing we've uh, we've had in uh, in some time now. Since probably Strangeness in the Proportion. That could be it. So yeah, check it out again. Uh, Kuboa Press at WordPress.com. Again, ebooks for free. But uh, buy a print book. Throw some money at them because they're putting out some really good stuff. And they're not making I mean, they're like five bucks, so they can't be even making any money out of it. I think it's yeah. just a, an endeavor of love. That's right. The the passion for good uh, good writing. While we're at it, we mentioned it before. I want to just mention it again. Check out Pablo and Sarah's uh, podcast. I uh, I listened to a couple more over, over the last few days. And uh, while very, very different from this podcast, um, and those two, they, they're just, I don't even know how to say it. They're what? like the really thoughtful parts of this podcast would be if you and I were like super intelligent. I agree. Yeah. So, so yeah, but uh, definitely give their, uh, give their podcast a listen. Then you can find uh, Pablo and Sarah DeStair's podcast at pswearebetter.wordpress.com. So they've got the five episodes in right now. So uh, good stuff. I've listened to the first four and uh, probably be listening to the other one this week. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like Livia said, it's like, uh, um, very literary, uh, very. So like when I stop because I can't think of words and I sound stupid, it's the opposite of that. What we do is we give a very good reader's impression of things. So we tell you what the book makes us feel, whereas they get into a deeper analysis of, of, of the writing of it and, and things like that. So uh, a different feel, but a, a really good perspective on, on the books that they're talking about. The one thought I had um, while listening to one of their episodes recently was that when I pen the great American novel, I hope those two don't read it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. So, uh, so it's a wrap on Craig Walwork and Kuboa press. Oh, my whole point for saying that is they can't possibly make a penny off this. And you know what? I don't really think it's their goal. Their goal is just to bring you um, good literature at a, at a very affordable uh, um, price. Like I said, free if you have an e-reader and if you want something for your bookshelf or something for Walwork to sign or whatever, you can pick up a copy for like five bucks. 
That's right. So, hey, uh, I think we got some news stories to talk about. I think we do. You brought all the news this week, so you kick it off. All right. So, and this came up just recently. I think even, I think yesterday I mentioned, I threw Olivia's a quick text message when I saw this on Twitter, but uh, Microsoft is investing quite a big chunk of money in Nook. Um, so up front, they're going to invest $300 million, which will get them, I believe, what is it, a 17% stake in uh, in the Nook business? Yep. Uh, not too shabby. And they're committed to basically uh, investing over the over a five-year period a total of $605 million. Um, they're basically throwing their hat in with Barnes & Noble to be the third major electronic book, you know, source out there. Yeah, it, it looks like, and I don't think any of the money is going to go into hardware or whatever. I mean, Nook's going to do with it what they need to do, but it, it looks like their investment is uh, is geared towards bringing um, the Nook software to um, to future um, Microsoft devices. They have a Windows 8 touch, you know, pad type system coming out soon. And it's, uh, you know, it's it's pretty assured that that's going to carry Nook and not Kindle, I'm thinking. And they're going to go that route. So they'll bring it. It'll probably wind up being pre-installed on, on PCs in the future and then on any type of Windows uh, smartphone or tablet. Yep. So instead of trying to come up with, uh, instead of trying to breathe life back into this Zoom marketplace failure they're throwing in with a company that's already established and pretty well established in the in the ebook world to to kind of kind of have a piece of that as well so um probably a good idea not a bad investment i mean there's really not a lot of game out there and and to try and step in on their own with a new platform is something they've been trying to do with these emerging markets like uh you know tablets and and with the zune you know the portable music players and stuff like that and just a lot of it's falling on their face windows phone 7 um and, and so, yeah, partnering up with someone who's pretty established, I think, is a re- <laughs> probably the best thing they could have chosen to do. Yeah, exciting week for uh, for the Nook folks. I mean, they uh, they have their launch, um, upcoming launch this week of the Nook. Uh, what's it called? The Nook Soft Glow. <laughs> the Nook uh, Simple Touch with the Glow Light. That's it. That one, right? The Indiglo. So, but <laughs> yes, the Indiglo. <laughs> but here, here was my thought on it. <clears throat> I wrote an email today to Microsoft seeing if they could invest $300,260,000 and send a couple of those uh, nooks our way so that we could go ahead and promote them on our on our world-famous uh, podcast. Hey, that's a good idea. Yeah, yeah I haven't you, heard back. Didn't hear Bill Gates didn't get back to you yet? Nope. Nope. Still waiting. Hold on. Let me check the email. Nope, still nothing. All right. Anyway, uh, best of luck to Microsoft. It's a, it's a tough game right now. Amazon essentially is the ebook world and, and Apple with the iPad has a really stronghold in the tablet side of things. So Nook is in a tenuous situation, but maybe with a little bit of Microsoft's money, they can, uh, they can gain some footing. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see what happens. My prediction is that uh, Amazon emerges clearly as the victor one day in the ebook game, clearly like with very little competition, unless it's, you know, small press. There you go. The sad part is, is that there's talk, too, that Microsoft might be considering getting into the publishing business through the same thing. And, you know, what I thought about it's going to make saddest of all is that Amazon and Microsoft will wind up being publishers when the publishers themselves. And I'm talking about like the big five may not even be publishing anymore because they're way, way, way too late to the game. 
Yeah, we'll see. It's going to be an interesting few. All right, so the last few years have been a revolution in the fact that, like, you know, you go from e-readers being, you know, the fancy new gadget that, you know, not a lot of people have to suddenly everybody's got, you know, either an iPad or a Kindle or a Nook. Um, and that happened, it feels like, overnight, you know. This podcast wouldn't have existed four years ago um, just because, God damn, I, didn't, I would not want to, you know, try and procure books you know this this whole um electronic book you know thing allows us to get in contact with craig wallwork who lives in the uk uh andre bergen who lives in in australia and never have to get the post office involved he just you know they send us a galley through the email and then that's it so like this podcast would have been so much more difficult to bring good content to so long ago. So I don't even know what my point was. I got so passionate just now. That I, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, the next step is going to be seeing how that affects publishers, I think, and, and who's going to come out in this, in this new world of publishing and who's going to fall. It'll be interesting to see. Absolutely. Um, Andre Bergen lives in Japan. Oh yeah. But he taught, he writes about Australia. My bad. Sure. That's Sorry, good. Andre Bergen. I know you're. I just, want, I just wanted to malaz you a little bit there. Blazed. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> so, um, but that brings up another interesting point that I'll kind of introduce here as we talk about digital publishing. Um, a Kickstarter project that looks like it may fall um, flat on its face, unfortunately, but a very interesting one for something called Steampunk Sherlock. Yeah. So I was cruising around um, IO9. Yesterday, io9 is a website. It's part of the Gawker group of websites, and um, randomly saw something about it. Just said steampunk, see, not steampunk. That'd be weird, but steampunk uh, Sherlock something. So I, I'm I've been trying to figure out how to get more into steampunk recently. Hints to anybody who's a big steampunk fan who wants to do an intro to steampunk episode with us. Um, and I saw this, so I, I clicked on it just to see what was going on. Turns out there's a uh, there's a dude right now, or a, a collection of people really, who have created an interactive book around a steampunk, a steampunk version of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, that's that's really interesting, uh, and they uh, are, are running a Kickstarter right now. Which at the time we're recording, there's 64 hours left to go, and they're just under ten thousand dollars short of their goal. So. Um, it's not looking good that they're going to reach the $29,000 goal that they have going on. Did you read up any at all about this, Livius? Um, a little bit. I mean, the prices are, were very, um, very reasonable. Um, $9, you know, gets you a lifetime subscription to the, the, the website. Um, you know, the, you'll get all the books as they come out, you know, so they already have plans for several books. Um, kind of interesting. I mean, it's, it's, here, here's the thing. Sherlock Holmes is very cool, and I read a lot of Sherlock Holmes when I was much younger. And a steampunk Sherlock is already kind of what I felt we got in the Robert Downey Jr. you know versions of that. So from a story standpoint, not real, um, not real inspiring. Although if it came out and actually came out, I think we'd almost have to review it just because it's a it'd be one of the first real interactive books. But um, yeah, definitely an interesting concept, something we've talked about before, and that just someone really has yet to, to, to crack that egg open and use the digital realm for, for something like that. Now, realistically, would it work on a Kindle? Yeah, probably not. 
Um, you'd probably have to have an iPad or an Android device that would be formatted properly or more, most likely just kind of on the web would be the easiest way for them to put that together. But yeah, very, very cool. Yeah, and the thing that I found interesting, I watched a little bit, like their their little Kickstarter video, and the thing that I thought was probably a good plan for them was that there are going to be, if if all goes according to plan, different levels of, like different incarnations of it with different levels of interactivity. So there would be a basic text only ebook version there's there would be an uh an app version for the ipad and probably other you know android tablets or whatever possibly um and there's going to be i know that there's a audio book kind of in the plans too so they're they're not hanging their their hopes on one format that people might not really buy into um they'd still just tell the story just as a regular ebook which i think is probably a good idea um that being said, for me, interactive books is something I haven't really ever had any experience with, but I know it's something that's going to come into more popularity, not only because, you know, uh, tablets and stuff are becoming more popular, but just because things like we talked about earlier, Apple has uh, iBooks Author, something they came out recently with, which is the free app that they're giving for people to develop interactive books, mostly textbooks, um, that they could sell in the iBookstore, so it's going to be something that's that's now easier for people to to develop. And so, um, I thought this was interesting as kind of an introduction for us to the concept of interactive books and to see. I mean, really, the problem I have, and I know I'm getting very long winded right now. Um, I don't know if I want to be reading a a passage or something and then to click on something so I could see a picture of what they're describing or, or listen to an, a, a sound clip that ties into what I'm reading. I don't know if that's going to be something that's going to detract from my experience or enhance it. So I'm a little bit hesitant about the idea right now. Well, it's interesting that, you know, that this came up when I did, I was watching um, one of Caleb Ross's um, latest video blogs and he talked about, um, you know, interesting structure in books. So meta, meta books, you know, where, where they're kind of different, of course, you can't have that conversation without talking about House of Leaves. Now, imagine a book like House of Leaves, and we talked about this at length on the show previously, so I'm not going to go into it, but imagine that as an interactive book where, you know, like you'd, you'd flip a page and then when the text is mirrored, you know, your text could actually mirror. So even if it's not so much like a clicking to get additional information, imagine what that could do for the, you know, the, the, the meta book if it, if it becomes, you know, if somebody really applies themselves to it. That's true, and I have to imagine that House of Leaves would be something that maybe even benefits from from a digital uh, interpretation of it because, like, um, I could say with the amount of footnotes there are, maybe scrolling footnotes or even, like, when you have to jump back to the back of the book, just, like, you know, something opening up a different section or something. That I mean, yeah, there is a lot of potential there, which, if done correctly or cleverly, could really enhance something. From a cool factor, I mean, there were parts of that book that were written, if I remember correctly, like on the inside of like a matchbook. So maybe you get to a part and there's yep. this little matchbook. And as you click it, it opens up and then comes up full screen on your on your you know your yeah. tablet device. Yeah, I mean, there's some really cool things you could do there, other than just you know the link to the actual biography of somebody or whatever. Although that stuff's cool too. So yeah, yeah. And I mean, like it's not like it's a new idea. There are, I mean decades ago there were annotated books so like if you if you had a i read an annotated version of um alice's adventures in wonderland when i was in high school and um the cool thing about that was as i'm reading along i'd already know the story 
but as I was reading along, there would be notes about something and you go look in the, in the notes along the side and you'd find out that, you know, Lewis Carroll was really big into numerology. And so like the, the numbers that were in this passage had this meaning to them and you would not have known that otherwise. So, um, yeah, I guess, I mean, I mean, that was a very analog version of that. Like an annotated book is nothing that is, is new or anything, but, um, yeah, I guess there is some merit to, to having the ability to have that extra kind of content or or insight built into it. I'm looking forward to it one day. Yeah. One day. It might be the next Daniel Lewski book. Who knows? So, uh, yeah. Right. (laughs) Um, so we'll put a link up, uh, and if you get to it in time, the actual Kickstarter ends May 3rd, uh, which is, what is that? Wednesday. That is Wednesday. Wednesday, May 3rd, uh, in the afternoon. So if you get to it before then, you could probably throw a little money their way. Oh, Thursday. Sorry. I'm sorry. So Thursday. Thursday, May 3rd. If you get to it in time, maybe you can throw a little money at that way. It's Richard Monson Hafel, I think it's the guy's name, from Minnesota. He's got this going on. So we'll throw a link up to that and see if it helps him at all. Look, they only need $10,000. So if each one of you listeners pledges, I don't know, like a buck, they'll be fine. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Uh, I think that's about it for us, huh? That's it. That's all we got. A couple more mentions of things. Um, Our next episode, super secret right now, because we're working on a little something cool for everybody, which may or may not involve a guest host. Um, But the other thing I want to mention is uh, iTunes. Everyone listening to the show knows I'm a huge, huge Apple fan. But, you know, I've started... (laughs) I recently started using an iPod. Um, I'm not going to go into explanation of why. But I found that all these episodes go right to my iPod when I plug it in iTunes if you're an iTunes subscriber. So the best way to get these episodes is either to really patiently wait for us to post them on Facebook um, or just, you know, subscribe on iTunes. Stuff goes right to your iDevice every time you plug it in or my iPod is an older iPod. I think you can air sync that too, right? With subscriptions, I don't know. If, I think you actually. I mean, you have. Or here's the thing: if you've got like an iPhone or an iPod Touch, um, you can go to iTunes directly from them and download episodes. So you don't necessarily have to be subscribed. Um, but yeah, syncing your device to iTunes is going to automatically do it. But otherwise, yeah, you can download them directly from iTunes right on your device. Well, there you go. So yeah, it's cool to not have to like chase them down. All I do is plug up my iPod, and I'm good to go. Yeah, because otherwise you you had no, you would have no idea what I'm talking what we're talking about on here. Pretty much, you know. There's times where I listen to these episodes afterwards, and I always I listen every episode once afterwards. So um, yeah, like we have that conversation. I don't, was I part of that? Because I space <laughs> out. You start talking sometimes. I go somewhere else. I check Facebook. I, I get up and I leave, and I come back and I, I miss stuff. So it's good to listen to a second time. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So uh, keep an eye out for a super secret next episode. I think it's going to be either a giant ball of fun or a total train wreck, but um, I'm going to do my best to see if we can talk about James Spader again. Somehow you managed to mention him this episode too. That's right. (laughs) There it is. There it is. Until next time, I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Keep reading. Keep reading.